What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This week's stories include Africa's richest woman is accused of looting Angola. I wrap up my multi-part series on the Astros sign-stealing scandal. Mike Volkoff takes a look at the year in OFAC enforcement. How can you use the Benchkowski memo internally? Matt Kelly takes a look at the latest Edelman Trust Report. If you ever wondered how the Department of Justice drafts policies, Clara Hudson reports on a Matthew Minor speech. Five men are indicted a massive cryptocurrency scheme and a comparison of the French and United Kingdom guidance on cooperation in anti-corruption enforcement actions. We conclude with asking the question of the SFO this an opportunity with its internal guidance. These stories and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor's Jay Rosen for This Week in FCPA, episode 189 for the week ending, January 24, 2020. The off with their heads edition. Jay, will another kleptocrat lose their ill-gotten gains? What are going to be the final fallout for Major League Baseball? And what are you up to? Well, those are all, all three good questions that I think we'll answer. Uh, let's deal with the uh, with these in terms of magnitude first. So, why don't you tell us uh, what is happening with Africa's richest woman, Isabel dos Santos? So Isabel dos Santos is the daughter of the former uh, premier of Angola, and uh, he had a, I think, 24-year run as the premier. And he and his family completely looted the country. Uh, That's how she got to be the richest woman in Africa. And uh, she has been, uh, I should say, accused of massive looting. She claims it was all through hard work that uh, she amassed this wealth. Uh, But in a stunning New York Times article, uh, that I believe came out last Sunday, it talked about the number of shell corporations and the strategies and tactics used that she was able to get money out of Angola and into her bank accounts. Uh, the story focused also on the U.S. companies that were involved uh, in facilitating that, and it was the usual suspects, PwC, Boston Consulting, McKinsey, uh, all of the companies we've seen in other African countries as well. Uh, this led to uh, just a, a flurry of commentary. Uh, first of all, the uh, CEO of PwC said that uh, heads may roll over the firm's work for uh, Dos Santos, the lead partner in charge of uh, PwC's work for her, uh, left the firm this week. Uh, there are calls for investigations, of course, um, as was with the uh, Gupta family scandal in South Africa, uh, FCPA implications are uh, 
plethora all over the place in addition to money laundering uh, issues. So um, when people wonder, aren't we at the end of the multi-billion dollar scandals? Uh, Here we are the first 20 days of January, and we're already into the first scandal, multi-billion dollar scandal of 2020. Um, It just never seems to stop, Jay. Well, and to uh, continue on with our uh, chronicling of uh, imbruglios, uh, January has also kept Tom Fox very busy as he's written about his hometown Astros and uh, giving us some fodder that will probably come to roost when we talk about the Red Sox. But this week, uh, Tom had three more parts in his blog blog post um, looking at the Houston Astros scandal. Uh, on the 19th, Tom looked at the ethics and the truth of the game and um, spoke about the self-proclaimed special one, Jose Morino, and talking about the fact that you really can't change the truth of the game. And uh, Tom looked at the hard numbers, uh, how uh, the Astros differed at home in a way. And then he asked the question about why do we have uh, ethics in sports? Is it to teach youngsters the importance of fair play as a social construct? Is it to create a level playing field for those who compete and do so on hard work? Or is it simply to the right to do the right thing? Uh, With regard to the special one, the Astros have grossly failed. In his second uh, blog post of the week, Tom looked at the whistleblower and amnesty. And uh, an interesting thing that I wanted to tie into, he talked to... um, he brought up a conversation with ESPN's Jessica Mendoza, who was a former softball player. And this is a very interesting thing that she was speaking for ESPN. She was speaking about whistleblowers and somehow she's also um, a consultant to the New York Mets. And she seemed to stress what many players seem to be thinking that they had a bigger problem with uh, the whistleblowers going public than uh, if they would have done this privately. So it's a really, um, it's, uh, Tom really gets into the weeds here talking about how uh, it was negative in terms of how the whistleblower was um, being perceived, but also quite a positive that Major League Baseball was able to get through this investigation in less than two months. And Tom hypothesizes that maybe uh, these multi-year FCPA FCPA investments investigations really don't need to take as long as they do. And in his final blog post, uh, he took takes a look at culture and why does it matter? And that although um, the Astros were going to be wearing the C for cheaters, the scarlet letter on their uniform, uh, one thing that we may not have considered is how the baseball players are going to police this by its, by themselves. So if you're a fan of the game, you know if uh, – somebody throws in a little bit tight on your pitcher on your batter or tries to brush them back or bean their brains out that you can be sure that the next time that person is up, there is going to be retribution. So it'll be interesting to see how we go into the season and whether any retribution is shown against current Astros players or former players from the team on 2017. So uh, hopefully Tom can set his sights on something else, but there is still a plethora of Astro stories out there. So, Jay, next, uh, Mike Volkoff continued his exploration of uh, enforcement actions 
in 2019, but this time he focused on uh, OFAC, and he had a great two-part series. Uh, Part one focused on the enforcement actions and the significant trends, and part two looked at the the OFAC uh, compliance guidance that came out. In the the trends, he found four basic themes that I think every uh, ABC compliance practitioner needs to be aware about, Jay, included uh, supply chain risk, uh, distribution business risk, um, um, third-party liability risk, and uh, then uh, the fourth one was the uh, risk around the changing nature of sanctioned countries and how that has changed so rapidly under the Trump administration. Of course, the um, OFAC guidance uh, was huge news in not only the OFAC community, but the ABC community as well. And he reviews that in terms of the five uh, major elements, senior management commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing and training, and then uh, fleshes those out a little bit. So uh, great couple of articles by Mike. And uh, the thing I would just like to emphasize, Jay, is uh, these articles are not for the OFAC compliance practitioner. These these need to be read by the anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance practitioner because uh, we need our our people, our community needs to understand OFAC is increasing its enforcement. It's going to overlap with the Department of Justice uh, enforcement, and you're going to need to show compliance with the OFAC compliance framework, and it makes good business sense as well. So it seems, Jay, you have figured out a way to use the Binkowski memo internally within a corporation. What uh, what were you able to uh, data mine with that? Yeah, so uh, this comes uh, out of my weekly blog on Corporate Compliance Insights. And in this week, um, I look at the ramifications of the Binkowski memo and recent DOJ policy changes and consider how companies can use the information from the memo to bolster the internal compliance programs. Uh, as we've seen now, the DOJ now mandates that companies coming before them have an effective compliance program. The days of wheeling in a large stack of documents are long gone and forgotten. But now companies must have substantive evidence of not just their program, but also its effectiveness. One of the strongest elements I take away from the Benkowski memo is that a company needs to demonstrate that it has an effective compliance program. And from there, you move to remediation and strengthening the program, which the memo addresses. If you begin with the premise that your company has a program, then the next step is to assess the program's strength and effectiveness, as well as its weaknesses. So what does the company do if it uncovers a problem? Does it have the wherewithal to conduct a thorough investigation and determine whether or not something has to be self-reported to the government? On the remediation side, has the company gone deep enough to find out the root cause of the problem? Questions such as, how do we get here and what do we do to address it can become paramount. And one of the key elements the memo underscores is how seriously the company takes its compliance program obligation and what it does when the problem has been discovered. The memo employs companies to both recognize that they have a strong investigative process and also to move to strengthen it. Another internal area the company can focus on is discipline for those who engage in internal controls and policies and policy violations. But even more critical going forward is maintaining a fair process for discipline and incentives around compliance. This means that discipline is meted out fairly. Internal controls testing also play a big role in the company, 
and a company could pose multiple internal inquiries based upon what are controls around cash. Do you have some kind of mechanism for determining where cash is being spent? Do you have control over bank accounts? And do you have control over who is making these decisions? Uh, next week in part three of this blog post, I'm going to explore now, since we've taken care of how do we leverage this internally, how can we use this information communicated in these memos to affect our external policies? Jay, next up, we've got an article from Matt Kelly over at Radical Compliance. Of course, Matt's the coolest guy in compliance. Yeah, the coolest guy in compliance. He uh, reviews the Edelman Trust Report, the 2020 Edelman Trust Barometer, <laughs> which was released this week. And he finds some fairly disconcerting news. Uh, the Edelman uh, Trust Barometer has been published now for 20 years, and it looks like distrust is growing in large, prosperous countries, really in a way that we have not seen uh, in quite some time. Uh, people, uh, while they trust their individual employer they and see businesses as competent, they do not see businesses as ethical. Trust gap is emerging between well-educated people and everyone else. Uh, distrust is growing in large, prosperous countries, as I mentioned. And then um, consumers expect brands to take an- stands on social issues and then act. So uh, lots of uh, information in here. He's got a section on trust and um, uh, implications for compliance professionals. So uh, take a look at it. Read the uh, Edelman Report. It's, it's always uh informational and uh, unfortunately it's enlightening in a a kind of a depressing way this time around. So have you ever wondered how the DOJ drafts its new policies? I have. That's a question that is on my mind. How do they do it? Well, thankfully we have some answers. We have some answers from Clara Hudson reporting uh, in Global Investigations Review and she had a conversation with a former uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Matt Miner, who is now back in private practice, and he's rejoined Morgan Lewis. Uh, he oversaw the Criminal Division's fraud and appellate sections, working closely with the Criminal Division Chief Brian Benskowski. Miner was involved in drafting a number of policy tweaks and updates, including the guidance for inability to pay claims and a revision of the department's guidance on imposing corporate moniker, monitors. Following his DOJ department departure, Miner spoke to GIR about how he and the variety of teams worked together to pen the changes. Miner's role at DOJ required him to work on multiple matters at once, which meant that he divided his time between the department's various priorities. For example, a critical issue Miner devoted much of his efforts to was combating prescription opioid issues. He elaborated that it was important to make sure the criminal division's language gelled with policies across other DOJ components. Miner pointed to the National Security Division's December self-reporting policy, which has many similarities to the DOJ's FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The monitorship memo was one of the more straightforward ones to rework, Miner said, as it was mainly an update to the so-called Brewer memo, named after the man who penned it, former Criminal Defense Division Chief Lanny Brewer. Through the process of revamping the monitorship memo, Miner said he and Ben Sikowski were already thinking about the updates to the DOJ's compliance guidance, which took more time and effort, and the latest compliance guidance that was unveiled last April. 
The guidance is intended to help prosecutors determine how to assess a company's compliance program and decide what changes to bring to reach settlements. When in private practice, before he took on the criminal division, Minor argued that compliance should be given more weight in charging decisions. And explaining why these decision updates were so important, Minor, Minor echoed what DOJ officials have stated repeatedly over the past several years as they roll out tweaks. Clarity is a friend of the government because it helps prosecutors, lawyers, and companies know what to expect. So when we're often talking about the roadmap that is being laid out by DOJ, we can thank Minor for his efforts when he was in the government in harmonizing these different programs. Uh, Tom, next up, five men were indicted in a massive cryptocurrency game. Our good friend in Philadelphia, Jonathan Marks, took a look on it in his board and fraud blog. What says Jonathan? So, Jay, this was a fascinating uh, story, which we probably need to file under. Uh, you couldn't make a movie about this or you couldn't write a novel about this, rather, because fiction has to be grounded in reality. Uh, on December 10th, 2019, three men were arrested in connection with an alleged $722 million cryptocurrency mining fraud scheme. There is an additional defendant at large. The um, uh, the scheme was uh, incredibly sophisticated, and Jonathan details that um, in uh, his blog post. Um, it uh, exploits, uh, obviously, the cryptocurrency world, particularly in terms of the peer-to-peer network. So uh, when you have that uh, network kind of outside the banking system and outside the regulatory system, you can you see how um, scammers can have a, a really a, a more straightforward uh, approach. And Jonathan details that he details how this fits into the fraud uh, Pentagon and the anti-fraud measures you need to put in place, both in terms of prevention, detection, and uh, perception. And also, uh, I think an important thing that we all need to remember, Jay, which is the dangers of irresponsible investing. And so the perpetrators of the scheme were competent enough to promote and sell their ideas and dupe literally uh, investors out of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, because of the lack of understanding of Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency, uh, these basic terms in the new economy. So great piece from Jonathan. And uh, I would sort of uh, put this under the category of what is risk and are you managing your own risk? So uh, as we do usually on a weekly basis, we've got a story here from New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog. And we've got a slew of lawyers from Skadden Arps who compare and contrast UK and French guidance on cooperation. On June 27th of this past year, the French financial prosecutor and the French anti-corruption agency published joint guidelines regarding the legal framework governing French DPAs. The SFO also did a similar thing on August 6th of this past year as part of the SFO operational handbook detailing the steps companies are expected to undertake to obtain cooperation credit. Both sets of guidelines demonstrate further alignment of these jurisdictions' deferred prosecution agreement regimes with longstanding practices in the U.S., albeit with some notable areas of divergence. I'll touch upon three of those. First, in terms of looking at self-disclosure, investigations, and cooperation credit, uh, the French, in their guidance, discuss how a company can meet the condition 
for obtaining uh, their form of a DPA, including standards for adequate cooperation. Much as the U.S. guidance encourages voluntary self-disclosure and cooperation with authorities, the French acknowledged for the first time the importance of internal investigations as a potential prerequisite to securing a DPA. The U.K. co-cooperation guidance, while shifting away from the previous SFO director's reluctance to provide formal written guidance, largely reiterates the best practices that have become articulated in previously as previous SFO standards. In terms of privilege, the U.S. guidance has evolved to a clear position that eligibility for cooperation credit is not predicated upon the waiver of attorney-client privilege. Um, the U.K. formalizes the position previously taken by the SFO that when necessary or appropriate, it will challenge assertions in legal privilege. Privilege. And finally, information on the individual and third-party conduct. The DOJ's current guidance, as revised in 2018, requires companies to provide information about the individuals substantially involved or responsible for misconduct. The U.S. and the U.K. guidance both make clear that companies are expected to provide information about the conduct of third-party parties. So uh, we link to the – actually, sorry. In conclusion – Taken together, the guidance and the recent practice in all three of these jurisdictions demonstrate how a coordinated strategy is essential for responding to parallel investigations. Companies should ensure that issues including deconfliction, privilege, and access to oversee records are discussed and reconciled with each investigation agency to avoid duplicative efforts, navigate compliance with local laws, and ensure maximum cooperation credit. So, uh, Tom, you've got uh, an article coming up next. What is the SFO's internal guidance? Uh, why did they miss an opportunity? Jay, this comes to us from Razi, uh, excuse me, Aziz Rahman. Uh, he is a senior partner in the international and corporate crime uh, section of uh, the UK-based law firm Rahman Ravelli. And it's posted in the uh, FCPA blog, and he takes a look at some um, guidance, I guess you would call it guidance, from the SFO, which was had a very soft release earlier this month. It is part of the SFO's operational handbook, and it is uh, internal. It's supposed to be internal guidance for the uh, SFO prosecutors only. Uh, Matt Kelly, writing in Radical Compliance, said that it looked like an intern had uh, photocopied uh, some a, a PDF and uh, slapped it up on the website. It is uh, eight pages of uh, documented title evaluating compliance programs, and it is um, some uh, thoughts on what prosecutors at the Serious Fraud Office are to look at uh, when they assess pro- compliance programs. The, um, the guidance and what um, Aziz really uh, bemoans is that the SFO could have really stepped up with some significant guidance here, uh, and they did not do so, that the guidance is uh, very, uh, I don't want to say perfunctory, but um, it's uh, eight, pa- <clears throat> eight pages, whereas in the, um, you know, in the U.S. we had 19 pages in the evaluation, and um, uh, commentary ran uh, much longer. So, uh, a really an opportunity, I think, to provide some solid guidance uh, was not uh, taken uh, by the serious fraud office. The uh, the one thing that uh, I thought was interesting was 
that it outlines the stages at which the SFO will examine a company's uh, compliance uh, program. And it's three. One, at the time of the alleged offending, when the decision is being made on what to charge the company. And then in the future, uh, when introducing evidence of an, a ma- maintaining an effective compliance program. So um, what was the compliance program like when um, the incident occurred? What What is the compliance program like when uh, uh, they're, as suppose, making a decision to charge? And then uh, at the at the time of prosecution, uh, has it changed and into the future? So um, whenever you have guidance, it's good, Jay. Um, we have, I think, a fair amount more in the United States, but uh, at least we have some from the uh, Serious Fraud Office. So uh, it is January 23rd, 2020. So that means you must be going into the home stretch of 31 days to a more effective compliance program series. What are some of the topics you looked at this week, Tom? So, Jay, on uh, January 13th, I looked at institutional justice. On January 14th, I considered risk assessments. On the 15th, I looked at how do you evaluate a risk assessment. On January 16th, I looked at third-party management process. And then uh, today, or excuse me, on the 17th, uh, I looked at um, uh, managing a third party. Uh, So um, lots of uh, good stuff out there. Um, uh, either uh, through a uh, force of insanity or uh, great acclaim for my audience, Jay. It looks like the 31 days to a more effective compliance program is going to morph into 365 days of compliance in 2020. So uh, look forward to lots more of compliance from the Compliance Podcast Network on this podcast, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, which now has its own uh, iTunes channel. Great. So uh, any comments uh, last week on the divisional championships um, and any uh, pre-Super Bowl scuttle on your part? So uh, I was disappointed Green Bay didn't decided not to show up. Um, I would like to have seen a little bit of a game, but San Francisco was just uh, completely dominant. Uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it's seven or 12 passes Garoppolo threw. Uh, it was a ridiculous number. There, there was a period between the second quarter and the third quarter where he went like something like twelve minutes without throwing a pass, and you know the ground game, the ground game's working. Grind it out. Patrick Mahomes was just stunning. Uh, Tennessee played, I thought, as well as they could have. Um, yet um, Kansas City was able to answer everything. Um, Tennessee threw at them. Uh, I guess in terms of uh, maybe we should hold off on uh, any predictions uh, till next week. But uh, I was just disappointed that uh, Green Bay didn't show up. Aaron Rodgers is 36 years old. How many more shots he's got? I don't know. It's much like Drew Brees. I think is Drew's a year or two older. How many more shots does Drew Brees have? Um, so we may really. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the golden one, uh, Tom Brady, uh, 42 how many more shots is he going to have? And we really may be having a changing of the guard uh, in terms of the top A elite level quarterbacks in the NFL. Your thoughts? Well, the the job, yeah, I think the job description for quarterback in the NFL has really changed over the past couple of years. And we've seen, uh, you know, the, the quarterback become real multifaceted. And not only do they need to run and not only do they need to throw 
but you've seen the different offenses out there that have been uh, designed around different players. And what they do in San Francisco is certainly different than what they do in KC or what they do in Baltimore. But, um, you know, I, I think the game is exciting from an offensive perspective. Uh, you know, from the, the defense, they usually have the rules against them. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it should hopefully make for a good Super Bowl. And we we haven't had uh, one of those in a while that was really uh, truly competitive to the end. So uh, I'm still looking forward to that. And, you know, to your your comments about the GOAT, uh, you know, I, I'm torn. Uh, you know, Kraft would like him to retire a Patriot. I really can't see uh, Belichick going out and getting the necessary pieces that Brady needs to move forward. And I think it, you know, it, it, it's going to be just like seeing Johnny Unitas wearing a, 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 an L.A. Chargers uniform. It, it just isn't right. And I can't see Brady playing anywhere else beside the Patriots. Well, what say you about your Michigan uh, brother? No, I agree 110%. And I would just add on that uh, – he has increased the value of the Patriots franchise. I'm not sure exponentially, but certainly by some amount. And his performance as the GOAT uh, in winning uh, five Super Bowls, um, going to seven Super Bowls, six? Six. Six Super Bowls, excuse me. I must be a trophy short. Um, He... um, I think he should be compensated for that, and I think he should be paid for that. And if he's paid $30, $40 million, whatever he's paid, it is a pittance for what he has made for Robert Kraft and that franchise. And I hope that Robert Kraft will step up and pay him not only for the value he will bring over the next year, I hope he, well, however long he plays, I'll put it that way, plus what he's brought to the franchise and and being the great Patriot leader he has. So uh, I, I am like you. I do not want to see him in a San Diego Chargers uniform. I guess that can't happen anymore. But I don't want to see him in an L.A. Chargers uniform or anywhere else. And I'm afraid, as you are, that if he does go somewhere else, he will be wind up broken in half on the field somewhere. And that's uh, kind of those pictures we saw of Y.A. Tittle when he was with the Giants, particularly last year, uh, when he was so desperately trying to win up his first uh, NFL championship will be the last pictures we have of Tom Brady. And I don't want his memory to be uh, that. All right. Well, let's leave it at that for this week. And I'm sure we'll have some uh, more uh, specific uh, comments next week as we move into the Super Bowl. On behalf of Tom Fox, the uh, compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to join. Uh, thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 189 for the week ending January 24th, 2020, the Off With Their Heads edition. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions of Jay, you can email him at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will plan to join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our collective eye. Of course, we will continue to follow the Red Sox cheating scandal. It will be no longer the Astros cheating scandal. 
Also, we'll have our Super Bowl predictions. I hope you will uh, check in for that very special episode. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again. If you haven't done so, please give us a rating on iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings for this show. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.